The National Women's Soccer League kicks off tomorrow in what might be its most important season yet. It's Friday, March 24th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The NWSL is simultaneously adding teams, growing its audience, addressing systemic issues around harassment and abuse, preparing for the Women's World Cup this summer, and showcasing its brand and reach for its next media deal. Every league has a lot going on, but I don't think any of them have more going on than the NWSL does right now. By basically any metric, this is a league on the rise. Every league saw an attendance boost coming out of the pandemic, but the NWSL saw its attendance grow 80% from 2021 to 22, and ticketing revenue jump 125%. Sponsorship revenue was up 87% in that span, and its viewership on Paramount Plus was up close to 30%. Going into this year, season ticket sales are already 20% higher for the 2023 season than they were for all of 2022. And yet, a lot of the headlines around the NWSL over the last year have been about abusive situations and the need for systemic reform in the league. The Chicago Red Stars and Portland Thorns are both being sold because both teams permitted a culture of abuse by their coaches. The Red Stars coach, Rory Dames, was allowed to stay in his job for years despite repeated accusations of verbal and emotional abuse. The Portland Thorns coach, Paul Riley, is accused of sexual coercion by multiple players. The Utah Royals were sold following reports of racist comments by former owner Delloy Hansen and a sexist culture in the team's front office. The Washington Spirit fired their coach Richie Burke in 2021 following allegations of verbal abuse and an investigation into the team's culture. When Jessica Berman took over as commissioner in April of last year, the first thing on our to-do list was systemic reform to ensure that the league led on team culture issues and that players have ways that they can trust to report abuse. I attended a media availability with Berman earlier this week, where she spoke to all of these issues and the big reasons for optimism in the league. She said that taking care of these internal issues is table stakes for the growth of the league, and that players want to have a league where they can focus on playing. They're a bit tired and exhausted from the burdens of having had to carry the weight of some of these areas of culture challenges and reform that have plagued the league for some number of years, and they're prepared to focus on playing soccer. And I think it's their hope that we at the league and through ownership and management can really take on the burden and work behind the scenes to offer the playing environment that meets the standard that certainly I've committed to, which is a place that makes the players proud to play. But the fact that new owners are coming into the league also provides an opportunity to find the sorts of people they want who are going to help the league into its next stage. When a team changes hands in the NFL or NBA, it doesn't generally have a major impact on the league, because those leagues are established to the point that one or two ownership changes won't make a huge impact. Steve Ballmer, for instance, has invested billions in the Clippers and their future arena, and they're still not even the biggest team in their own city. With the NWSL, however, an owner that comes in willing to spend both on a team and the league's overall growth can make a huge difference. The most important thing is that we have the right ownership in place who are not just resourced appropriately, but willing to invest what's necessary to provide the professional environment that we all know is necessary. The NWSL is officially bringing a new team to Utah in 2024 after the first one moved to Kansas City following the aforementioned sale and is expected to announce another in the San Francisco Bay Area, which I've heard from a couple of sources is likely to be in or near San Jose. A team in Boston is expected sometime soon as well. 
A few years ago, the league charged an entrance fee for new teams of around $5 million. For future teams, that number is expected to be more like $50 million. The NWSL's next task is to see if they can get that kind of multiple for its next media deals, which they expect to wrap up in the third quarter of this year. The league is reportedly currently making just $1.5 million per year on its U.S. media deal with CBS. We can expect that number to grow significantly. Everyone knows that uh, we are in an ongoing media process. Our current deal with CBS uh, expires at the conclusion of the 2023 season. The conversations we've had have been robust. There are many interested parties in the media landscape and uh, couldn't at this time share any of the details of that. Um, But we are looking at it holistically. We're looking at it both from a domestic as well as international perspective. And we think that there are some really interesting opportunities um, here and overseas to consider as we think about growing our brand globally and really claiming our space as the the best league in the world. Yes, the bar here is the best league in the world. Not the best women's league or the best soccer league, just the best league. Whether they can get there will be determined by whether they can stay on their current trajectory starting tomorrow. Up next, we have my front office sports colleague, Amanda Krisovich, talking all things March Madness. We'll have that conversation right after this. Two thousand, two thousand eight, twenty twenty two. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain: it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over thirty one thousand businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on Netsuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. Netsuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting, so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. So, how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer, Netsuite. Netsuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improve their visibility and control when they upgraded to Netsuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash frontoffice right now. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. All right, I'm joined now by our reporter, Amanda Kristovich. How are you doing, Amanda? I am doing great. It is, it is the peak of March. Uh, we should call out at the top that we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, uh, and so stuff will happen tonight. We don't know what, but um, some of the teams we're going to be talking about inevitably will not be there by the time you listen um, on Friday morning. We've got four teams right now that have both um, a men's and women's team in the Sweet 16. So who are they and what kind of commonalities are, do we see in these programs? Yeah, so it's pretty incredible because, you know, it's a feat in and of itself to make a Sweet 16 with one team. <laughs> so we've got this year, so UConn is a pretty perennial, I mean, I wouldn't say perennial, but they're usually... You kind of assume they're going to be there, rightly or wrongly. That the, you know, the men's and the women, there was one year where the men's and the women's teams won the championships in the same year. Um, so they're they're in that spot this year. They're both uh, in the Sweet 16. Uh, UCLA has its men's and women's programs. Um, Tennessee 
and somewhat newcomer Miami. Um, the Miami women had a huge upset um, to get into the Sweet 16. So, you know, I did a little bit of, of, of research and the first thing I noticed was the fact that all of these programs spend at least $5 million on their women's program, right? And at least $15 million combined. Obviously, the men's programs, um, and that's not including coaching salaries, by the way. So this Department of Education data, I think, is telling because, you know, obviously, if you want a good men's program, you've got to invest a lot of money. Uh, women's programs are expensive, too, because the quality is high. Women's basketball you know, is a premier sport. So that's important to note. Um, In the press conference yesterday or on Wednesday, for those of you listening on Friday, um, the Tennessee men's coach talked about how, you know, from his perspective, the administration is really key in terms of, um, you know, providing the resources that allow for a men's and women's team to be good at the same time. He talked about, you know, the athletic director, university president, all the way down to the women's basketball coach at his school. And then the third thing I think is culture, right? Um, we, I always say that the biggest fans of women's basketball are men's basketball players um, because they understand and really have always respected uh, women's basketball. Um, and, you know, the Miami women's coach in her postgame press conference on Monday night talked about how, like, you know, in the uh, in the training room, the men's and women's programs like, you know, compare wins and losses. They try to, you know, they don't just support each other, but they like push each other to succeed. They expect greatness out of each other. Right. So I think, you know, culture, investment and administration are three common denominators that I've seen that have brought these schools success. And on that investment side, if we're not counting coach salary, which might be the single biggest item in, in the budget, what's going into that, you know, five million on the women's side and probably 10 plus on the men's side? Yeah, I mean, it's going into everything from like traveling expenses to like, you know, uniforms, right? Um, to where, you know, what the players eat when they're on the road, things like that, right? Um, everything that's big and small, um, resources for training, you know, I mean, obviously this isn't necessarily counted in like the, the, the money that I just described from the department of education, but it's also important to think about the facilities resources, right? So our teams being playing in, um, you know, the same arenas when a team, you know, talks about their new football stadium or their new basketball arena, like, are the women, do the women have access to that, right? Like, for example, in Texas, um, the Moody Center opened up. That's a basketball arena for men and women. So that's important to note as well. Yeah, I was reading some article. I think it was about Farley Dickinson. It was one of the, the you know, the crazy upset teams. Um, and they were comparing their their home court to like a shoebox or something, and they were very proud of it. You know, they, 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 great things happen in that shoebox. But um, it's it's nice to not have a shoebox. It's nice to have like a full arena. Um, so let's actually jump over to another uh, another Cinderella who's still in there, uh, and that's Princeton. So they are making a you know they're a 15 seed and they're in the Sweet 16. That by itself is is pretty shocking. Um, so yeah, just talk to us about that story and uh, what do you think it means for that program? So Princeton actually has a pretty storied men's basketball history going back to the Bill Bradley days in the mid sixties. However, I will say they have not made a sweet 16. I just looked this up uh, since 1967, a couple years after Bill Bradley left. 
So um, the program obviously has had, you know, many years of a lot of history, but not a lot of success since those days. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of things floating around the basketball ether that have to do with Princeton. It's just crazy that they haven't, you know, had the opportunity to have this sort of spotlight since then. And then what I'll say about what it means for the program, they are a Cinderella team, but are they? Because what we think of when we think of Cinderella, we think of schools that, you know, frankly, not to disrespect these schools because they're very important, but a lot of the country hasn't heard of them. A lot of the country had never heard of St. Peter's. A lot of the country had never heard of FDU. Everyone knows Princeton, right? Princeton doesn't need an uptick in applications, which is usually pointed to as a major reason that a Cinderella run is important to a program, right? If anything, Princeton is like a 4% acceptance rate. They need fewer applications. But here's what they are getting um, based on my reporting. They are going to get, hopefully, a recruiting edge. For athletes, they're competing against schools like Stanford and Duke that have high, high-level academic programs, but also really well-known and high-resourced athletic programs, right? So they're competing against kids that are interested, for kids that are interested in that. Um, so to prove that Princeton athletics can give you the big stage um, as some of these other non-Ivy but high-level academic programs is is really helpful. And then the other thing is Princeton has like more than $30 billion in endowment. That doesn't mean that their athletic program is rich. Often at a lot of these schools, the issue is that the programs, uh, the athletic programs have issues fundraising because a lot of their uh, donors, they want to donate to the academic side, which is obviously not a bad thing, right? But a run like this can galvanize donors to maybe, you know, kick something over to the men's basketball team, kick something over to the women's basketball team, in addition to all of the athletic funding or academic funding that they provide on an annual basis. Yeah, they're in a really unique spot as an Ivy League school where, you know, obviously many, many people want to go to Princeton for any number of reasons, but there is this niche of like, I might want to go into basketball. I'm really good at basketball, but maybe I'm just going to go like go into business, become a lawyer or whatever. Um, and, you know, Princeton is, that could be a sweet spot uh, if they show that their athletic program can hang with, with you know, the Alabamas of the world. Um, so we've got another lesser known Cinderella in the East, FAU. And by the time you hear this, they will either have continued their incredible run into the Elite Eight by defeating Tennessee, or they will have lost. Um, and, and, you know, that'll be the end, but still a very impressive run. Absolutely. Um, you know, another huge financial underdog. They um, So if Princeton spent the least amount of money on its team per Department of Education data, then FAU spent the second least of any men's programs that are left in the Sweet 16. And um, in the press conference yesterday, I think this really explains the situation well at FAU, um, the coach, Dusty May, talked about, he said, look, we're happy to have the label, you know, I'm paraphrasing, we're, they're happy to have the label because it helps the crowd get behind them, right? But he doesn't really consider them a quote unquote Cinderella team. However, when I asked him about, you know, how, how have you, has your program gotten to this point competing against schools with so many more financial resources than you, than you have, he did kind of like chuckle. 
Um, because not only does the school have less resources, but he's one of the lowest paid coaches in the Sweet 16, if not the lowest. We don't know how much Princeton's coach is making, like, confirmed, because it's a private school. They don't have to release that information. But he kind of laughed, and he was like, you know what? Um, you know, it's like these kids came in with a chip on their shoulder. And, you know, if anything, like, it's like a motivator. Uh, so it's, I don't know, it was that was interesting to me because it was almost like, well, we don't have the money, but we do have the intangibles. All right, Amanda Krisovich, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Check out Amanda's reporting on frontofficesports.com. Tell us what you think of the show and any questions you have at today at frontofficesports.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. 